We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Hello and welcome to Water Cooler, the Menzies Research Centre's flagship discussion programme. I'm Nick Cater, the MRC's Executive Director, and my guest today is Australia's 28th Prime Minister, the Honourable Tony Abbott AC. Tony left Parliament in 2019 after 25 years as a member for Warringah, eight years on the government front benches, and two as Prime Minister, plus two more as an assistant minister. Tony, welcome to Watercooler. Nick, it's lovely to be with you and with the Menzies Research Centre's supporters and friends. Tony, the starting point for our discussion today is the book Abbott, The Defining Speeches. It's a book, Tony, which I think outlines your 25 years as a politician in your own words, as it were, written at the time. Uh, a memoir without the gloss of hindsight and all the more valuable for that. But I think the first point to make is that these are your own words, or, or most of them, because I sense you are not the kind of person who found delegating speech writing very easy. Am I right in that? Nick, uh, you're right. I did labour over just about all of those speeches because nearly all of them were scripted speeches as opposed to extempore speeches. And while I was lucky enough as opposition leader and prime minister to have uh, researchers and even drafters, uh, in the end, uh, nearly every speech was very heavily uh, rewritten, sometimes uh, from, the from the very start uh, by me, because I figured that just about everything you do uh, can be undone. Uh, the one thing you do as a politician that can never be undone uh, are the words. Uh, they can't be unsaid once they're, they've been said. Your policies can change. Um, um, the things you regard as great monuments can be smashed to pieces by your successors. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, once you've said something, it's there forever. Well, there's a lot we could look at here, but I'd like to focus today particularly on your on your maiden speech to Parliament, and a very good one, incidentally. And I think it's well worth the price of the co the cover price of this book alone. Um, we'll use it, I think, as a starting point to assess your achievements and, and perhaps some missed opportunities, if you want to go there uh, during your 25 years in Parliament. Seventeen of those on the government benches, so you don't, or at least you don't have the excuse that some do that you couldn't make a lot of difference because you're in opposition. Uh, it was your first substantial contribution to the parliamentary record. It came on May 31st, 1994. Labour had been in power for more than 11 years. Paul Keating, who had about another 22 months to run, I think, as Prime Minister, but that was far from certain at the time. You'd been an MP for less than two months, but already you'd experienced some of the brutalities of parliamentary life. Let's remind ourselves what happened uh, a week before your maiden speech. This is National Nine News with Brian Mailer. Downer and Costello take over as the Liberals dump John Hewson. Good evening, Alexander Downer prized the Liberal leadership out of John Hewson's hands today by just seven votes and immediately vowed to give the party a fresh start. The other half of the so-called youth ticket, Peter Costello, was elected deputy unopposed. Here's Laurie Oakes. John Hewson, accompanied by wife Carolyn, flew into Canberra in a chartered plane to try to save his leadership. The challenger arrived on a commercial flight. 
and their predictions were predictable. I'm very confident. I feel very good about it. We can count and uh, we're very confident in the support that we have. Uh, a win by one vote is enough. As Liberal MPs converged on Parliament House, the count was tight and Dr Hewson may have been in front. But by the time they began filing into the party room for the ballot, a few hours later, there'd clearly been a move to the so-called youth ticket. 42-year-old Mr Downer for leader, Peter Costello, 36, for deputy. Yeah, Tony, I think that was the first of um, six leadership spills, I think, on your side that you were to experience. Four of them, I think, had uh, one M Turnbull's uh, name attached to them. Tell me what it was like. What was the atmosphere like a week after that leadership spill when you, you stood to give your maiden speech? Yes, I felt rather nostalgic looking at that uh, news clip, Nick. Look, uh, I'd worked for John Hewson. I was his press secretary stroke political advisor for three years. I had uh, quite a degree of respect for John, but uh, I have to say that... Uh, he did lose the election uh, because uh, uh, the fight back package was too ambitious for the electorate at that time and I didn't think that you could uh, drop the package to keep your job when you hadn't been prepared to drop it to win the election. Um, so look, uh, much as I respected John Hewson then and still regard the fight back packages. Uh, a splendid piece of policy work. Um, I did think he was, in a sense, living on borrowed time and I wasn't surprised to see uh, him replaced. Now, obviously, Alexander Downer was subsequently replaced by John Howard, who went on to become um, arguably the greatest post-war Prime Minister, certainly with Menzies, uh, the greatest ever Liberal. But... Uh, these great events are happening around you. Uh, my job, uh, other than to cast a vote, uh, was not to fret too much about the things that were uh, too big to be much influenced by me. My job back then was to give the best possible maiden speech. So I sweated blood uh, for several days over its drafting. Uh, I delivered it as well as I could. And uh, to this day, uh, I think it's a pretty good effort and thanks for republishing it. Well I'd, I'd agree with that it's a very very good speech and uh, if I may say grown battered with age which is, is is a rare thing for maiden speeches I think. Um, you make a few points in it Look, it reminds me I think you mentioned Robert Menzies your maiden speech reminds me of something Menzies once said about public life about his aspirations he said he wanted to leave office in a country that was both more prosperous and just than the one in which he entered office. We talk a lot about prosperity, of course, but uh, the idea of uh, just or, or social justice, as Robert Menzies called it, I, I think there's quite a bit of that in, in your speech. Uh, social justice, well, first of all, am I right in that assessment? And secondly, is social justice a word that we should try and reclaim from the left? Yeah, Nick, I can't remember whether it was Popper or Hayek uh, who said that uh, social was a uh, weasel word that you applied to a decent concept when you actually wanted to abandon it. I think it was Hayek. Um, um, anyway, this particular uh, luminary uh, said that uh, uh, justice was giving people their due. Uh, social justice was 
putting people into some kind of predetermined straitjacket um, and it was often very unjust to individuals. So personally, I'd prefer the concept of giving people their due uh, than this rather grandiloquent term of social justice. Uh, uh, like uh, uh, the philosopher, I prefer justice to social justice because social justice can indeed often be unjust to the individuals and um, the people who talk about social justice in our society uh, normally want fairly radical change. They normally want to take from those who have to give to those who have not. Now, um, if people have got what they have fairly, uh, it seems a bit rough to take it off them, um, other than for an absolutely overriding national objective. And one of the problems with confiscatory taxation is that it can end up killing the goose that's laid the golden egg. And that's one of the many reasons why I've always preferred the Liberal Party uh, to its principal opponent, uh, because we understand that in the end, there has to be reward for effort. In the end, there cannot be something for nothing. And that's one of the fundamental problems uh, with the Labor approach. There is too much of the something for nothing in it. Yeah, well, when you entered Parliament, of course, Labor had been at it for 11 years, uh, taking from the poor, giving to the rich, as it were. Uh, you, you do highlight in your speech uh, the, the low and middle-income middle income earners, uh, people I think Labor likes to pretend, has a conceit to pretend it represents, but in practice, of course, it doesn't. You cite the example of somebody at that time who was on a salary of $30,000, uh, whose take-home pay after tax would have been $455 as a single person. And now, if you scale that up for inflation, uh, today it would be a salary of $56,000. Uh, that same person would be paying around $60 less in tax a week after, what, 16 years of, more than that, eight, 18 years of, of coalition government. Does that impress you? Does that surprise you? Look, uh, you're right to remind me of that uh aspect of the speech because uh, back then uh, the family of four on one income, one middle income, uh, was scarcely better off than the single person on the same income despite having four mouths to feed and four people to clothe and house and transport. And I always thought that we needed to try to rejig the tax transfer system to more appropriately recognise the responsibilities uh, that any particular income had to carry. Now, uh, the family tax benefit changes that were brought in by the Howard government, particularly uh, family tax benefit part B, uh, from memory, were a very important step in that direction, uh, a very important way not of providing middle-class welfare but of providing what was effectively a tax cut for single-income families. Now, uh, I still think that was a very important measure of giving people their due. I'm not going to use the term social justice. It was a very important measure of giving people their due and uh, I would like to see 
uh, more of that today. Um, another measure that the Howard government brought in that I was rather associated with myself, Nick, is is work for the dull. Um, mm. uh, so in terms of giving people their due, the family tax benefit package was critical. In terms of avoiding the something-for-nothing mindset, work for the dull was critical. Um, because uh, uh, of all the various uh, change circumstances uh, that we've faced, I think there's uh, much less of an emphasis uh, on the kind of thinking behind work for the dole and the kind of thinking behind that, those Howard government uh, tax changes. But frankly, we do need to get back to that. We really do need to get back to that. My government tried to bring a form of work for the dole back after it had been effectively abolished under Labor. Uh, I regret to say that uh, work for the dole kind of fell by the wayside uh, after I was replaced. But uh, we still need to ensure that we beat the something-for-nothing mindset. For instance, right now, Nick, there are businesses all, all around the country saying that they can't get workers, and yet we have something like one and a half million people on the job seeker benefit, on the dole. Now, how can it be that there are unskilled jobs going begging right across our country when we still have that many people supposedly unemployed and definitely on benefits? Well, something's wrong. Uh, and frankly, uh, this is uh, the evil of sit-down money, as Indigenous people uh, very sensibly came to describe it uh, back in the 1980s and 90s. And we shouldn't have sit-down money for white fellas, just as we shouldn't have sit-down money for black fellas. Uh, and the sooner we get back to a situation where anyone who is able-bodied and who has been unemployed for a certain length of time uh, has to do something in return for their benefits, the better. Well, yeah, I mean, of course they do at the moment, but uh, one of the things I think we've been looking at and I'm concerned about is the penalties. It's essentially, I think, like a, a driver's licence. So if you have one breach of your obligations, um, that's fine. You just get a little note saying, but you have to go, I think, to five breaches, is it, or before you you actually start to lose your dole pay. So you could not turn up to five interviews. You could, you know, you could refuse to apply for jobs that are available five times. All those things before you're actually penalised. It seems to me there's scope for reform there. That doesn't meet the pub test in my mind. Exactly right. Look, um, uh, if, if you've got a casual job and you don't turn up, you don't get paid. Simple as that. And frankly... Uh, that's really how it should be for unemployment benefits. Um, there should be a requirement on longer-term unemployed people to turn up at least two days a week to do some valuable uh, community work or to engage in um, very thoroughgoing work experience. And if the person doesn't turn up, well, then the dole should be ducked for that day. Now, if they subsequently come up with a good excuse, fair enough, uh, restore the pay. 
But uh, if that can't be done, if it was just a question of, sorry, I didn't feel like it today, or sorry, I got a better offer, or the surf was good, well, frankly, there's got to be a consequence for bad behaviour. Since those days, since you you entered Parliament, there's been almost a transformation in politics where, an inversion, if you like, where the uh, working people who Labour used to claim its own are now, I think, more likely to vote coalition increasingly. Uh, you know, back then, I, I don't know whether this is your recollection, but if you got into a taxi or you spoke to a tradesman, chances are they'd be a Labour voter. Now, it would be quite strange if you found a taxi driver who was sort of radically Labour. 40% um, of the population were union members there. But of course, that has changed. Is that because Labour, Labour's hollowness in their support towards lower middle income workers is, has been found out or are there other factors at play? There's no doubt about the phenomenon you describe. And I can recall as Workplace Relations Minister uh, 20 years ago, uh, routinely standing up in the parliament and saying uh, that the Howard government was the best friend the workers of Australia had ever had. And it was true in terms of giving Australian workers very high and sustained real increases in their wages. And that was possible because we were also getting uh, sustained increases in productivity, at least in part because of more flexible working arrangements uh, that were less driven by uh, very restrictive work practices in awards and so on. And and that's... So, so what we now find, Nick, where more and more uh, working people are voting Conservative uh, was a development that began at least 20-odd years back uh, un- under the Howard government. Uh, I I sometimes say that um, increasingly the Liberal Party is uh, the working class party in this country. Uh, Labor increasingly is the welfare class party. Uh, But of course, it's it's not quite as simple as that, is it? Uh, Because if you are uh, a talker as opposed to a doer, um, if you're a public servant, a school teacher a journalist, dare I say, you are more likely to vote left uh, for the Labor Party or perhaps even more the Greens uh, than for the Liberal Party or for uh, the centre-right more generally. So, so what we've seen, I think, as time has gone by is, on the one hand, uh, economic uh, uh, sort of income levels have become less significant uh, as a determinant of of people's voting uh, habits and cultural issues have become more more important as a determinant uh, of people's voting habits. And if you think that people should work for a living, uh, if you think that the world doesn't owe you a living, you tend to be a centre-right voter. If you think that government's got to do more uh, on whatever it might be, uh, you tend to be uh, a leftist voter. Uh, If you're proud of your country, uh, you tend to be a centre-right voter. If you think that there's a hell of a lot that Australia needs to apologise for and there's various elements of fundamental injustice in our society, uh, well, then obviously you tend to be a leftist voter. So, so yes, these are long-term seismic shifts 
that have been going on in all of the English-speaking countries, but certainly in our country too. Here's another factor that may help us account for this great inversion of politics. When you entered Parliament, uh, there were 1.4 million graduates, university graduates, in the workforce, I think about 9% of the working population. Now there are 5.4 million. So that's more than trebled in your time uh, during Parliament. In fact, almost quadrupled. Is there something about that that helps explain the change in politics? Well, I I don't want to... uh look like I'm anti-university education because uh, I'm not, Nick. I mean, I'm a graduate of two universities and I had a a wonderful time at both of them and learnt a lot and did a lot at both of them. But university is right for some and wrong for others. And I've got to say that uh, right now, our country does not need more marketing graduates. It does not need more arts and sociology graduates, frankly, it probably doesn't need as many commerce or law graduates either. Uh, What we need, we need more sparkies, chippies, uh, we need more mechanics, we need more welders, uh, we need more people who can actually do things, get things done, often enough with their hands. We need people who can build things And yet we've got so many people who can talk about things, but not necessarily make things happen. And sure, uh, if you want to be an architect, a vet, a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a pharmacist, you've got to go to university in order to acquire the necessary skills for those vital occupations. But there are lots and lots of people... I wouldn't want to put a percentage on it, but it would have to be pretty high, uh, who go to university, uh, they spend three or four years of their life not getting any closer to a real career, not getting any closer to a real job, accumulating 50 or 60 or $100,000 in debt, and often enough filling filling their heads with leftist uh, ideology And I just don't think this is helpful for our country or for the individual's concerns. So I do think we need to have a a long, hard look at just how useful a university education is uh, for all of the people who are getting it. Now, that said, uh, if you are academically inclined, uh, if you are intellectually curious, uh, if you've got the, the intellectual potential to benefit, yes, of course, you should have every opportunity uh, to go to university. But if instead you don't know what the hell you want to do when you finish the HSC at the age of 18, don't think uh, that going to university is somehow going to solve your problems for you. Don't think that going to university is somehow going to give you an answer. It could just be putting off Uh, the kind of decisions and the kind of responsibilities that, frankly, you ought to face up to sooner rather than later. Yes. 
Speaking of which, responsibilities, uh, as we record this, you've just become a grandfather. Congratulations, uh, young Archie Locke. No, Ernie Locke. Ernie Locke. Ernest Locke, I'm sorry. I got the. I was thinking, I'm thinking of the, the gin, I think. But anyway, congratulations, Tony. It's a great moment. I always think my advice to, to anybody is to skip the parent phase and move straight on to being a grandfather. <laughs> All care and no responsibility. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Here's the thing I want to put you. So uh, just looking back again to 1994, the year you entered Parliament, uh, the average age for a woman to give birth for the first time was around 28, uh, and that would that have been rising. Uh, and now it's 30, the average age of a first child. And I think if you looked at the statistics too for the average age at which people leave home for the first time, that's growing older. What's happening here? Is this childhood being extended? Or Look, pe- people, people are delaying life, Nick. Uh, they're spending much longer in school and, and, in, and in other forms of education. They're sp- spending much longer uh, in, uh, in the family home as opposed to creating one for themselves. They're, uh, they're delaying having kids and a family. Now, I can understand why uh, any individual uh, may well want to do that and I'm not saying that for every individual it's a bad thing, but when it happens on the scale that it's currently happening, uh, you've you've got to wonder uh, whether we don't need to just take life by the scruff of the neck a lot sooner than we are currently inclined to do. One of the implications there, of course, is if people are spending longer studying, uh, less time starting out in a career, that's earning potential over a lifetime, uh, which is reduced. And, and particularly at that early stage, um, we hear a lot of complaints about the price of housing for people trying to enter the market, the problems of saving for a deposit for a mortgage. Uh, and sure, our house prices have risen substantially in the capital cities. We understand that pressure. But sometimes I can't help thinking it might be better if people got into the workforce a little earlier and did fewer degrees. Am I being too hard? No, no. I, I think this is a robust common sense, Nick. It's exactly what I would expect from the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre. Um, if in doubt, have a go. And having a go uh, could much more easily be, or might much more easily be, going out and getting a job as opposed to putting off the day of decision by just wandering off to university, particularly to do a lifestyle course, as opposed to something which is going to equip you with serious knowledge uh, for a significant future. And meanwhile, at the other end of the scale, we're growing older. In 1994, 11.9% of the country was over 65. Now it's 16%, rising quickly as baby boomers retire. Are we properly prepared for that in policy terms, in terms of health and aged care provision? Okay, well, Nick, uh, two things that I tried to do, um, failed at both of them, but, uh, but let's look at them again. Uh, I tried to bring in what I called a, pay, a fair income paid parental leave scheme because if we want more women to have more kids, uh, if we particularly want middle-class women to have more kids, we've got to make it more financially affordable for them. Now, there's this 
absolute obsession uh, with childcare, but what about um, uh, childbirth? Uh, we all know uh, that for a lot of uh, two-income families or two-and-a-half-income families, uh, having an extra kid is, is a financial disaster uh, because it takes the mother out of the workforce for a significant period of time. Now, I saw the uh, Fair Income Paid Parental Leave Scheme, um, notwithstanding its heavy fiscal cost, as a modern conservative measure. And it grieved me then, and it still grieves me, that some of my uh, conservative friends uh, vitriolically opposed it. Um, if I may say so, I thought at the time, and I still think, uh, that they were being a little dinosaur-like. Um, if you want people to have kids, if you want families to be bigger, you've got to give families more support, and that's exactly what that measure was. Now, the other thing uh, that, that I tried to do was to raise the pension age uh, by small steps uh, to 70. Now, it's interesting uh, that Labor raised the pension age for males by small steps to 67. Uh, it wasn't opposed by us uh, when this was done, I think, by the Rudd government. Uh, when we tried to continue the process uh, to raise the pension age to 70, there was vicious vitriolic opposition. Uh, and yet, when you look at the average 69-year-old today and compare the average 69-year-old today with the average 64-year-old, uh, back uh, in the 1900s when the pension age was set, it's chalk and cheese. I mean, life expectancy at birth when the pension age was set at 65 was scarcely 60. Uh, life expectancy at birth is today something like 85. Um, your average 65-year-old uh, is physically and mentally still absolutely in his or her prime, uh, so why should we be pensioning people off? Uh, why should we be expecting them to retire, indeed encouraging them to get out of the workforce at the age of 60, 65? If they can't continue to work, sure, um, there's the disability pension, but I don't believe that people should be going on the old age pension uh, at, at 67. Um, why not? Um, give ourselves more access uh, to the skills of older people. Uh, why not say to older people, uh, you have a lot to contribute to our society and to our economy. Uh, why not, given that most of us uh, make most of our contribution through our work, why not encourage people to work for longer? Now, if they don't need to, of course, uh, but then they should support themselves. And if they can't, of course, um, there's the disability pension. But why should uh, we still be paying um, old age pensions to people at the age of 65 or thereabouts? Um, let's go to Warringah, your electorate there on the, the North Shore. Beautiful part. I think you describe it in, the, in your maiden speech as the most beautiful place in the world or close to that. Uh, Warringah is almost the Garden of Eden, you say. McKellar might be God's own country, but Warringah is God's garden. So it's my job to make it more perfect 
It's my job to make more perfect what is already one of the best places in the world to live. You obviously love the place. Uh, I just might jump on to something else you said in your speech. You were talking about the traffic, the clogged roads in Warringah. Um, still pretty clogged, I think. Uh, you can, I congratulate the New South Wales Transport Minister, Bruce Baird, for establishing a committee to investigate alternatives to recommend a solution. It seems to me that a tunnel under Military Road with a better crossing at the spit can be built for just $30 million of taxpayers' money. By contrast, the most publicised mass transit system is estimated to require a taxpayer subsidy of some $600 million. Um, a splendid idea, I think, a tunnel. Uh, why hasn't it happened? And, and as an addendum to that, uh, John Anderson, the former Deputy Prime Minister under John Howard, said... When I asked him if he had any any regrets or anything he felt they should have done that wasn't done, he singled out infrastructure. Well, Nick, I think the phrase I used back in the day was, uh, Ringer is by far the best place to live until you want to go somewhere else when you get caught in the world's longest parking lots. And that's just got worse over the last uh, 25 years. One of the many reasons why I am desperate to see the Berejiklian government returned is because the Berejiklian government is committed to the Northern Beaches Tunnel. Uh, it has put already hundreds of millions of dollars into the preparatory work for it, and hopefully in the next few months it will make the final financial commitment, the tenders will be let and construction will start within 12 months. The problem, if I may say so, Nick, is that here, as in so many other things, our decision-making processes have become almost uh, irredeemably gummed up. Uh, we have a terrible case of constipation in government. We cannot make things happen. Uh, whether it's building infrastructure or getting new submarines or building dams or getting baseload power, uh, we are very bad at getting things done. Now, one of the things that I was most proud of from my brief time as Prime Minister was that uh, by working with amenable state governments, uh, we have started to get serious new infrastructure underway. Uh, West Connex is now uh, at least in part open would never have happened uh, but for the Abbott government's work with the uh, O'Farrell-Baird government. Uh, North Connects, now open, would never have happened uh, but for the Abbott government work with the O'Farrell-Baird government. The Western Sydney Airport would never have happened uh, but for the work my government did. Um, the North-South Link in Adelaide uh, is, is, is now largely complete or certainly substantially on the way to completion, thanks to the work that I did uh, with the South Australian government. Um, but gee whiz, it's tough, mate. Getting anything done in this country now is very, very difficult. Uh, the decision uh, to get WestConnex done, uh, from memory, was made in late 2014. It's only now, six years later, that parts of it are opening. Ditto North Connects. Um, so look, uh, there is, we, we have analysis paralysis, uh, 
mm. and we've just got to get mm. so much better at it than we than we have been. I think that leads neatly on to the next topic I wanted to discuss, which is Commonwealth state relations. This was something you you uh, took seriously as Prime Minister. You set up uh, a white paper process to look at how to improve Commonwealth state relations, get rid of duplication inefficiencies, I guess the sort of stagnation that you're talking about as well. I, I think at the time I thought it was a very worthy exercise. Uh, it was a pity that it got dropped by your successor. Uh, but I think now what we've seen in the last 18 months during this, uh, uh, the plague, if we can call it, the arrival of the plague and the way we've treated this COVID-19 pandemic You've got to say that Commonwealth state relations just have to be fixed, don't they? Well, the problem, Nick, is that wherever you turn, it's far from clear who's in charge. Uh, and with any particular area of governmental activity, there's got to be a clear chain of command and you've got to know who's in charge so that you know who to blame when something goes wrong. Um, so this dog's breakfast of divided responsibilities that I used to refer to uh, has just got worse in the last few years. Um, they say you can't unscramble the egg. Well, frankly, we have got to have a long, hard look at who does what uh, and separate out to a much greater extent uh, what is the Commonwealth's responsibility and what is the state's responsibility. Um, I thought uh, that uh, uh, we would give public hospitals back entirely to the states. We would give public schools back entirely to the states. We could well have ended up taking preschool entirely off the states. Uh, we could well have ended up taking TAFE entirely uh, off the states. But we need to look at the division of responsibilities uh, and get those lines of responsibility uh, just so much clearer. Instead, with things like the National Cabinet, we're making it, in my judgment, worse, not better. And at the very least, uh, we should stop calling this National Cabinet a Cabinet because, frankly, uh, a Cabinet makes decisions that bind all its members uh, and the National Cabinet is not uh, a Cabinet in that sense. Um, that's a marketing ploy, calling it a Cabinet. Uh, the National Cabinet is a coordinating committee at best. Uh, so let's call it that. No mention in your maiden speech of China. Uh, not surprising. Uh, I don't think too many people thought or talked about it too much then. But of course your speech was what? five years after the Tiananmen Square massacre almost. Uh, and, uh, and yet it seems our view of foreign policy, our foreign policy approach to China back then was sort of surprisingly benign. I mean, the consensus was that democratic and civ civic freedoms would inevitably follow from economic freedom. It didn't turn out that way, did it? No. Were we naive? Look, I suppose uh, looking back, of course we were, but at the time, uh, that wasn't what the best minds thought. Uh, it was the Deng Xiaoping era, let's not forget. Um, Deng Xiaoping was the guy that said to get rich is glorious, and we all assumed back then 
that economic liberalisation would inevitably lead to at least a substantial measure of political liberalisation. What we now know better is that they never stopped being Marxist-Leninists, the communist leaders of China, and the economic liberalisation uh, was for the strengthening of the party state, uh, not for the withering away uh, of the party state. So look, um, we've all woken up uh, to uh, the monster we've created and we now have to deal with it. Uh, and my deep anxiety, Nick, is that the contest that the Western world is now entering uh, with the communist China is going to be uh, every bit as difficult as the long contest that the West had with the old Soviet bloc uh, because uh, while the old Soviet Union was certainly a first-rate military power, it was a third-rate economy. Um, what we're dealing with now is a first-rate economy uh, that's uh, rapidly developing a commensurate military strength. And of course, uh, there's 1.4 billion Chinese, whereas uh, even in the heyday of the Soviet Union, uh, Russia had about half the population of the United States. I think the realisation that China is a problem, that it is still a communist country, uh, that the Cold War in a sense never went away, uh, has, has heightened, uh, of course, during, during the COVID crisis. And, and inevitably, uh, Nick, it, it's, look, it's, it's, our, it's our good qualities that have, in a sense, created this difficulty. Uh, I mean, back in the late 90s, I think it was the Clinton administration that uh, auspiced China into the WTO. Um, China's never played fair when it comes to trade. Uh, they've engaged in wholesale intellectual theft. Uh, they've engaged in wholesale subsidi subsidisation uh, of their national champions uh, so that they can, as it were, capture markets and then dominate them uh, using stolen intellectual property They've never played fair, um, but look, uh, because we wanted to bend over backwards to be fair, uh, we turned a blind eye to all of this, and whatever faults and failings uh, that a parted President Trump may have had, uh, at least he was awake to this, uh, and he started the fight back. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. But I think now we recognise this for what it, we should have seen it all along, and that is a battle over principles, over values. It's a battle in the end for the defence of freedom, isn't it? And look, as always, Nick, I want to make a sharp distinction between the Chinese people, uh, for whom we should have nothing but uh, benevolence, and the Chinese party state, uh, which is uh, a horrible dictatorship. We've got to be sure of our own values, haven't we? We've got to be confident in our that, own and that's values the, of freedom. And that's the big problem. Not only do we go into this uh, cold peace uh, with China uh, with uh, uh, a vastly uh, more significant competitor than we ever had in the old Cold War. Uh, but we are suffering from uh, a cultural malaise, a cultural self-doubt, um, almost an existential crisis um, if you look at what's been happening over the last year or so in the United States with Black Lives Matter, etc., 
that we were never subject to, to anything like the same extent at any time in the Cold War. I know uh, there are lots of Americans who are unhappy with America uh, during Vietnam, but it was the policy of the American government that they wanted to change, uh, not the nature of American society. And again, this troubles me that we've seen this in the last 18 months here in Australia. We've, we've meekly, it seems to me, surrendered basic, uh, essential human freedoms that we would never have imagined were under threat, haven't we? And we've done it almost without protests. I mean, we never had. There's never been a curfew in any major city in this country not even in World War II until last exactly year. Exactly right, Nick. Look, I, I don't want to be too critical of government because uh, uh, the pandemic was uh, a completely unprecedented challenge. Uh, not since 1918 uh, have, uh, have we faced uh, a challenge, a health challenge of this magnitude. So I don't want to be too critical. But, but one of the many reasons why I have never been comfortable with the lockdown mindset is that I just think it's contrary to human nature uh, to want to be passive as opposed to active in the face of a challenge. And there's something odd about leadership which is almost manically busy telling everyone else that you've got to do absolutely nothing. Uh, We save the world by lying on our couch rather than saving the world by rolling up our sleeves and doing what needs to be done. And uh, this is, I think, why there's been so much... uh, I I think it's been a very spirit-sapping year or so, uh, this uh, this pandemic. Let me close with a quote from your speech, high up in your speech. This is obviously something you wanted to say very early in your parliamentary career. I want to record my deep conviction that our Australian story should fill our hearts with pride and our eyes with tears. It is the story of the dispossessed and the outcast, redeemed through the innate goodness of humanity. A society challenged by nature, tested by war, enlarged by other countries and blessed by such peace, prosperity and tolerance that we are now the envy of the earth." Pride in one's country, a little less fashionable now than it was back then? Most definitely and most regrettably, Nick. Uh, I'm proud of those words. Um, I hope hope I'm still capable of drafting uh, such words. But uh, uh, pride in our country is not as widespread as it was. And it is particularly hard to find in the places that should be propagating it. Um, A school curriculum, for instance, uh, where every single subject is supposed to be taught from an Indigenous, from an Asian, and from a sustainability perspective is a school curriculum which is fundamentally subversive of pride in our country uh, because it's raising questions about our legitimacy, it's raising questions about our culture, and it's raising questions about the way we treat the planet. And frankly, uh, for all the mistakes that we've made as 
a nation and as individuals, the record is one that the world should admire and we certainly should admire. Well, as an immigrant to this country, I couldn't agree with you more. It is the best place on earth bar none. And I'm delighted to be here and I'm delighted to be talking to you today, Tony, and to publish this book, Abbott, The Defining Speeches. It's available from the Menzies Research Centre. You can find it on our website. And if you're quick, we may even be able to persuade Tony to sign a copy for you. Tony, thank you very much for joining us on Water Cooler today and uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. Good on you, Nick. Nice to be with you. Thank you. listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Thank you.